Section 1 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896. Section 1 For Fame, Money, or love by r otolenghi i was supremely happy i use the superlative because in all truth i had never been so happy before the cause of this ecstatic condition was the very ordinary fact that i had asked beatrice van alden to be my wife and she had consented i do not know what other men have felt under similar circumstances but i can assure you that i thought myself a very superior sort of being I held myself very erect as I walked down Broadway on my way to my office. Perhaps it might even be said that I strutted. I don't know, certainly. I believe that I blindly walked into several persons. I have an indistinct notion of apologizing more than once. At any rate, I am confident that I was excusable under the circumstances. A man feels such sensations as I was experiencing only once in a lifetime. This was my turn at happiness as it were. I remember that I walked that morning because I felt compelled. I started in a horse-car, but abandoned the stuffy vehicle after a single block. I could not endure confinement at such a time. You see, I was so happy. And yet, when I look back upon that moment now, and view my situation critically, I see that had I been perfectly sane, I must have realized that I was actually in a serious predicament. I had asked Beatrice to marry me and she had accepted, in a dainty little note which greeted me at breakfast. It had been a most foolhardy piece of presumption on my part to propose to her, for the reason that I often found it difficult to pay my own bills. How, then, could I meet even the expense of feeding and clothing a handsome woman accustomed to the good things of life, to say nothing of providing for the possibilities of the future? I had known Beatrice for only a few months, but with me it had been love at first sight. I had devoted all of my spare time, and much of my cash, to the gratification of her little desires. I paid her marked attention, and, before long, became satisfied that she was not indifferent to my suit. Discretion whispered to me to wait till I had built my dove-cot before catching my dove, but love shrieked in my ears day and night, "'Take her now, or you will lose her.' This seemed quite possible for she was constantly surrounded by an admiring circle of men wherever she appeared. My final proposing had been precipitated the night before by a streak of jealousy which overtook me whilst at the opera. I had bought a box at considerable pecuniary sacrifice, and she and her mother had accompanied me. Much to my disgust, several men dropped in to visit and remained to converse. One man, who posed in society as a German count, particularly annoyed me. He monopolized Beatrice as though she were his personal property. Worse than that, she seemed quite willing for him to do so. I think now that this was but a feminine trick to make me anxious, and so to hurry the crisis. At least it accomplished that result, for I left the box, obtained writing materials, and penned a formal proposal of marriage, which I slipped into her hand at parting. The result was the aforementioned note of acceptance 
and the coincident happiness that this morning had already reached the pitch where I longed for a confidant. It was in this frame of mind that I entered the building wherein I occupied a suite of two small rooms, upon the door of which appeared my name, with the attractive words, Attorney at Law, beneath. As I stood awaiting the elevator, I mechanically allowed my eyes to run down a list of names of the other occupants. Suddenly my attention was arrested by one which seemed quite familiar, that of Andrew Manning. I had known a man by that name at college, where we had been close friends. After graduating, however, I entered the law school whilst he went abroad, and I had never seen him since. On the way up, I spoke to the elevator boy, and my curiosity was whetted. From his account, it seemed that this Andrew Manning not only had his business offices in the building, but had taken a large suite here where he lived in bachelor style. I at once sought his rooms. The office door was still locked, but upon ringing the bell knob at the next door I was received by a servant who, in response to my inquiries, said that Mr. Manning had gone out to breakfast but would soon return. Upon expressing a wish to wait, I was ushered into a really cozy parlor, which at first impressed me as the most luxuriously comfortable little box that I had ever entered. The next moment I experienced a sensation of oddity in my surroundings, whose cause I was at a loss to name, as everything seemed so entirely in keeping with everything else that there was no incongruity. Yet there was an unconventionality about that assailed the senses. At length I discovered the primary cause. The walls, ceiling, and carpet were black. The latter, upon closer scrutiny, I found was not a solid black, as it appeared, but a black background into which figures were interwoven in dark blue. The effect was very rich. The walls were covered with jet-black cartridge paper, but this was relieved at intervals by small fleur-de-lis in burnished blue steel. The ceiling was covered with the same paper, studded with silver stars, arranged exactly as are the constellations in the heavens. In one corner was a crescent moon, which could be illuminated by electricity so as to light the room by night. A few of the planets could also be made to serve as electric lamps. The somberness which would ordinarily prevail in such a room was entirely obviated by the furnishings. Rich Dagestan rugs and heavy silk oriental portieres in warm colors partly lighted up the prevailing blackness, whilst the walls were so covered with pictures and gilded frames that the papering served only to heighten the general effect. The furniture was all in bright, though not gaudy, colors. After taking in my surroundings in a general view, I began to walk around for closer inspection of the pictures, many of which I found to be rare gems. Presently, I stopped before a frame which excited my curiosity to the utmost. Whereas the other pictures had all been paintings in watercolor or in oil, this was merely a photograph, a portrait of a woman. That much I could discern, though I could not see the features. What riveted my attention was this. The photograph was a small card, cabinet size, placed in a rather large frame, surrounded by a wide mat. Covering the picture entirely was a black veil folded several times and fastened to the glass at each corner by a red seal. This arrangement in itself was curious enough, but the mystery was heightened by the fact that a small gold hook had been driven into the upper edge of the frame and that from this hook was suspended a bit of blue ribbon, at each end of which was tied a solitaire diamond ring. What could it mean? 
I had barely asked myself the question when a footstep in the adjoining room warned me that Mr. Manning had returned. Reflecting that after all it might not be my friend, and that in any event it would not be pleasant to be caught in front of a picture so suggestive of a secret history, probably of a personal character, I hastily stepped across the floor and dropped into a chair. A moment later Mr. Manning entered, and, though changed, I at once recognized him as my old college chum. I arose and greeted him effusively, as was natural in my happy frame of mind. He took my hand cordially, remembering me also, but his manner was by no means demonstrative. On the contrary, I detected a certain reserve, a sort of dignified quietness of speech, which at first jarred upon me. Indeed, I felt almost as though I had made a mistake in calling, and that my old friend was not overjoyed at renewing my acquaintance. In this, however, I was entirely wrong, for upon my attempting to depart, he peremptorily insisted upon my remaining to talk over old times. After that, we became almost chummy. At least I did, though he still exhibited that phlegmatism which was so foreign to his character, as I recalled it. Finally, in spite of this reserve, I began to feel so much at home with him that I ventured to direct the conversation to the veiled picture. "'I suppose, Andrew,' said I, "'you must have travelled in many countries since we last met. You have brought home such a number of curios from foreign climes.' "'Another evidence, my friend,' he replied, "'of a poor deduction from good premises. Most of the pictures and bric-a-brac about this room attest to a personal collection in many countries.' but there their value as evidence ceases. I did not collect them myself. I simply inherited them. Inherited them? I asked. Why, none of your family have died, I hope. No, but a very dear friend. You may even remember him. He was at college with us for a short time, a senior whilst we were sophomores, Julius Craig. Not the tall, blond fellow who was daft on the subject of music. The same. He went abroad immediately after graduation and travelled everywhere. I eventually met him in Paris. We became great friends and remained so till he died. What a pity that he should have died so young, for though we used to guy him, I always thought that he had the seeds of genius in him. Here I determined to venture upon a bold stroke. But tell me, Manning, why do you drape his picture with crepe? How do you mean? Oh, I see. You have been looking around my room and allude to the veiled picture. You are wrong. That is not Craig's portrait, though the crepe, as you term it, is there as a memento of him. How? I do not understand. My friend, you have unwittingly touched upon a subject which is very painful to me, one upon which I seldom speak. But you are my old college chum, and I see that, unlike myself, you have retained your youth. I will tell you the story of that picture if you wish, but I warn you that it might be better for you not to hear it. Why? How can it affect me? By shattering some of your ideals, by affecting your faith in humankind. Shall I speak? If you please, I was too anxious to hear the story to hesitate for such a seeming trifle. That you may fully comprehend the strange tale, began Manning, I must first tell you something about Craig. As you have admitted, he was a genius. A greater musical genius has never lived, perhaps, and yet he dies without fame, almost unknown. I became very intimate with him shortly after reaching Paris. He had a bachelor suite on the Rue de la Paix. His principal room, a combination of parlor, smoking room, and study, was fitted up exactly as this one is. 
Indeed, everything that is in this room was in his, except that picture which is veiled. Even the wallpaper and ceiling I brought over with me. He paused, and I stared about with renewed interest in my surroundings. I began almost to feel that it was uncanny, this scheme of inheriting a man's belongings and perpetuating his living rooms to such an extreme as Manning had done. One could almost fancy that, if such things can be, Craig's ghost would be about the place. Craig had an odd theory about music, resumed Manning. His idea was like this. A man is an embodied spirit. Thought is an attribute of the spiritual man. Language is, as it were, thought materialized. A necessary form of transmitting thought, essential to the physical man, but not used at all by spirits. In simpler language, articulate words are used by physical man to convey his thoughts to other physical men. Some thinkers claim that the spirit not only abandons words, but does not even employ any form of sound with which to convey thought. Craig counted this a gross error. He argued that if a spirit could perceive the thought of another spirit, clairvoyantly, magnetically, or in any manner which would exclude the will-power of the thinker, it would be manifest at once that thought would be useless since it would be universally known as soon as conceived, or at least spirits would cease to exist as separate individuals and must necessarily combine as a single mind. Such a theory would destroy utterly our preconceived notions of immortality. The individual would no longer exist as an individual, and at death would simply be swallowed up by this one great spirit mind. This idea is abhorrent to us. Do you follow me? Perfectly thus far, I replied. Very well. The next step is to explain Craig's notion of the transmission of thought in the spiritual world. This is accomplished, he believed, by means of music. By music? How ridiculous! Then the angels would all sing to each other? Exactly so. But remember, they would not sing words. Words belong to the material sphere. Craig claimed, with much reason, that the spiritual is present in man, the animal, since man thinks and gives expression to his thoughts. This he does in two ways, by spoken words, the material method, and by music, the spiritual method. I don't quite grasp that, I objected. Yet it is perfectly simple. Your composer of music is merely a man who thinks out his ideas and sets them down in musical tones instead of in words. This truth, of course, has not been grasped by the multitude, but it is only like the many others that we pass by because they are so constantly present with us that we do not observe them. Craig then argued thus, Here are two methods of conveying thought, spoken words and music. By the mathematical axiom, things equal to the same thing must be equal to each other. Consequently, for every word in a language there must be an exact equivalent in a musical tone since each represents a thought. The converse is not true, however, for the reason that the language of words is very incomplete many fine shadings of thought being so incommunicable in one language that we are forced constantly to borrow from others to meet our wants. Even the sum of all the languages of the earth cannot express thought as accurately as can music, for there must be as many variations of musical tone as there can be conceivable phases of thought. 
Thus the spiritual transcends the material. But granting all this, to what does it lead? It led Craig to a wonderful invention. He explained to me that whilst there could be no accurate equivalent of all musical tones in spoken words, at the same time it is quite possible that music composed by a material man would so differ from true spiritual music that, whilst the latter would not be transcribable to human tongue, the former, probably, would contain no ideas that could not be translated into words. This because the mind in its material environment would not think in music much beyond what the tongue could express in words. Do you get that? Perfectly. Craig's hope was to invent a new musical instrument which would accurately translate music. To be more explicit, his instrument, when played upon, would respond not in ordinary tones, as does a piano, harp, or violin, but in actual spoken words, which words would be the equivalent in thought of the musical tones of the composition. In other words, the instrument, played upon like a piano, would respond somewhat as though a human voice were singing. Thus we should have the spoken words and musical tones blended in a single expression of thought. Was not that a grand idea? It sounds like insanity to me, I said dubiously, and to me also at first. Finally, however, I accepted the whole theory, but endeavored to discourage Craig from attempting the impossible. He would listen to my argument and shrug his shoulders with a smile, saying, Nothing is impossible. Man may accomplish what he wills. If it is conceivable in thought, it is possible. The impossible cannot be conceived. The only difficulty is that the material man may wear out before the spiritual accomplishes his purpose. This, however, is no argument against endeavor, for what is unfinished in this life may be completed in another. We will begin where we leave off. So all progress counts in the total sum. Thus, you see, it was not easy to prevent Craig from pursuing his hobby. Now I come to the story of the picture. Manning paused a moment, but I remained silent. Presently he began again. In Paris I met and loved a beautiful girl. To make this part of my tale brief, I will only say that, after a few months' acquaintance, I was made excessively happy by her accepting me as her future husband. At the time I had not seen Craig for several days. I had never spoken to him of my love, because he always seemed so wrapped up in his music that all other topics of conversation were excluded. It was three days after my engagement when I walked up the stairs that led to Craig's apartments. I had become so intimate that I did not even knock, but turning the doorknob I entered this room, or rather the room which was like this. Craig was not there, but before I could look for him elsewhere I observed a new piece of furniture. It looked like a piano, and yet it was dissimilar too, being like an upright piano, but double the usual length. Like a flash it broke upon me that this was Craig's new instrument. I advanced to examine it, and raising the lid, I noted the white ivory keys. There were no black ones. My curiosity was at once so great that I could not wait for Craig's return. I was possessed with the desire to hear this instrument sing. I may say sing, because I have no other word that will express it. An evidence, you see, of the poverty of language. I touched a key and produced a prolonged, oh, which was so like grief that I released the note quickly. I glanced around in search of some music and observed a freshly written manuscript lying upon Craig's desk. 
This evidently was a composition made expressly for the new instrument. I took it with suppressed excitement, and with trembling fingers I began to play. Well, I asked excitedly, as Manning paused, I was now thoroughly aroused by his weird tale. My friend, he continued, I hope you will never experience the agony which was mine during the next few minutes. As soon as I pressed the notes indicated in the manuscript, a voice as from another world spoke, or sang, or chanted, what you will, no words describe it. It was a combination of musical tones of supremest purity with words in English. There was the only incongruity or discord. The harsh gutturals of our language sounded out of place, and yet they told a sad tale that has been burned into my brain. I will repeat the words to you. The composition was entitled, The Wail of a Broken Heart. The music began in a monotonous but melodious chant, whose opening stanzas were devoted to an impassioned defense of the constancy of men whose love, so the poet-musician declared, was no less often betrayed than was that of women. Then, leaping from the general to the particular, the chant continued. This I know, that I, myself, am just that doting fool that trusted all to one. She came into my life but five short months ago, yet in that brief, sweet space of time I've dreamed of joy, so great that I have pitied those in paradise who died unhallowed by such love as I thought mine. In these fantastic visions I have seen myself by emperors crowned, in fancy have been hailed music's greatest master, musician, world-renowned. But dearer yet than emperor's crown, within my heart, I prized the smile of love upon my sweetheart's lips, for she it was whose sacred love had aided me to reach the pinnacle of fame, but these were dreams. Here the melody changed, this time wailing out in mournful cadences the story of how, an hour before, all the composer's hopes had been dispelled by a brief note from the woman he had worshipped. "'Twas thus,' she wrote. "'Forgive me, love. What mockery to use that word. But I must tell the truth. Alas, I have deceived thee. My love cannot enrich thy life. I think I have no love, no heart, but in its stead ambition stirs my soul. To share thy fame I would have joined my life to thine, but I have changed my mind, and now give all for wealth, which hath a mystic power, to buy whate'er the heart may crave, including fame, and love perchance, and so I sell my love for gold. For wealth I sell myself, and thee, farewell, forgive. O God, that one so fair in form should be so foul in soul. Ah, well, tis over, ended, done, here the voice ceased, for the composition had never been completed. By an odd chance, however, I once more rested my hands upon the keys, absorbed amidst a riot of thoughts, when, to my horror, the voice again was heard, a terrifying shriek, ending in a prolonged moan as from a soul in purgatory. I quickly lifted my hands, and silence reigned. At length this became so oppressive that I hurried from the room in search of Craig. Manning was silent a moment, overcome by the emotions aroused by the recollection of the scene which he had depicted. I found him in his bedroom, he continued. He lay prone on the floor, with blood oozing from his mouth. I hastened to him, but he was already dead. A post-mortem became necessary, and it was discovered that the heart muscle had actually been ruptured. He had literally died of a broken heart. 
I found in his tightly closed hand a copy of the letter referred to in the music. The words were identically the same, so you see how accurately he had transcribed his thoughts into musical composition, and how admirably his instrument had portrayed his emotions as well as his music. The greatest shock to me was yet to come. I found the envelope in which the note had been folded, and within it was a diamond ring, one of those now hanging upon the ribbon. The inscription gave the name of the girl who had thus rudely sundered her engagement and killed my friend. Well, I muttered, half expecting what he would say. Oh, I read there the name of the woman to whom I was engaged, that is all. He left his seat abruptly and went to the window, with a low, empty laugh which made my heart turn chill. I sat silent, with a portentous feeling of some impending evil. I deeply regretted that I had tempted him into this recital. Now I understood it all. The veiled picture was that woman's portrait. The two rings were her two engagement tokens, presented to her by Craig and by Manning. Presently he turned and came towards me. Standing near me, he continued with perfect control of his voice, and in that phlegmatic tone which now I comprehended, he had learned self-repression. You see, he went on, poor Craig, upon receiving that cruel letter, had evidently tried to drown his sorrow in his music. His great instrument had just been completed. Fame was within his grasp when this blow which slew his love came upon him. With indomitable will he at once realized that, while his heart was so stirred, he might, perhaps, compose a masterpiece. So he sat down to write his own sad story in that spirit language, music. It was a master stroke of spirit over matter. His will would surmount the pain that a woman had caused him. Alas, poor man, even in the midst of this grand effort of the spirit to show its supremacy, the link that bound his soul to this earth was rudely snapped. His material self ceased to exist. The shock had broken his heart and so his beautiful spirit was released. But I, I was still alive to face precisely the agony which he had thus escaped. The same note which told him that the woman would have married him for his fame confessed that she accepted me for my wealth. Of course that ended all. I covered her face with a veil and hung the two rings where you see them. I took Craig's things and brought them here. His rooms I have reproduced as you see and because I wish to live alone. I have done the eccentric thing of making my home in an office building, away from the regular dwellings of the city. A morbid fancy, if you wish to consider it so. As to the wonderful instrument, that was injured on the way over, and was dumb when I opened it. Craig being dead, there was none who could restore it. But what became of the girl? I asked thoughtlessly. I do not know, he said absently. To me, Beatrice is dead. Beatrice? I asked with sudden surprise. Did you say Beatrice? Did I? He asked, still dreamily. I don't know. Perhaps I did. It was her name. Beatrice Van Alden. No sooner had the words fallen from his lips than I started to my feet and rushed from the room. He tried to stay my flight, alarmed, I suppose, by my appearance, but I eluded him and rushed down the stairs and out of the building, never heeding where I went. All I knew was that my happiness had suddenly ceased. For hours I wandered about the streets like one crazed. When he told me that she, that woman who had been death to poor Craig and misery to himself, that she was Beatrice Van Alden, my Beatrice, the pain at my heart was so keen that I would cheerfully have accepted surcease by sharing Craig's fate. 
At last one ray of hope penetrated to my heart. She had accepted Craig for his fame and Manning for his wealth. Why had she accepted me? I have neither genius with which to win fame nor that wealth which she counts so potent. Why, then, had she accepted me? For love? Why else? Then, after all, is not love the greatest power, and has not her heart at last been found by me? Then why not accept the situation, forget this horrible tale, and marry Beatrice? What would you do in my place? End of section one. Recording by Narrator Jay.